Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. This episode, we're joined by Wendy Brister, Marketing Director at Cavanaugh's Perennials, Inc. And Wendy is a garden consultant. She is a designer and lecturer in the Mid-Atlantic area. She's also an adjunct instructor and a lifelong gardener and lover of native plants. Welcome, Wendy. Thanks for having me. So we're here today to talk about preserving, um, canning, freezing, drying, dehydrating. But first, let's talk about Wendy. So how did you first get into gardening? It was kind of a fluke. Um, I grew up on a produce farm, and the last thing I ever wanted to do was garden or do anything with plants. I thought I was going to strictly go into education, and that would be it. And then my senior year of high school, I got connected with a FFA advisor and he put me in the school's greenhouse and it's all downhill from there. (laughs) But that sort of started it and got me involved and interested again um, that there was more to this industry than just produce farming and crop farming. Um, So I went on to college and I got a degree in landscape architecture and realized that I liked the plants more than sitting behind a computer. So I took every horticulture course I could get a hold of and networked as much as possible and learned as much as I could early on. So that was the beginnings. And where was this produce farm in uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania? It was. It was in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Yeah. And that's still where you're based out of now, correct? Um, I'm based out of York, which is right next door. So Mm -hmm. to my family, I've crossed the dark side and I've crossed the Susquehanna River. (laughs) But (laughs) um, to most people, it's really, it's not that far. And it is a beautiful farming area there. Yeah, it is. It's very pretty. So what brought you into native plants from produce? Well, I was first exposed to natives in college because I was fortunate at the time I was at Temple, um, John Collins was the chair of our department and he was a huge advocate of native plants. And he actually got me to the Millersville Native Plant Conference for the first time. And my husband and I went and we met all kinds of really cool people and we were really hooked. And at the time too, when we were in school, Native plants and sustainability was a big emphasis of the program. So early on, we were exposed. As we got out into the industry afterwards, we realized that, wow, the rest of the world really doesn't have that much, you know, knowledge about all of this. And we had to learn more mainstream landscaping and and get involved that way. But it was always in the back of our heads. And um, probably about... Oh, I don't know, 10 years after graduating, my husband and I decided to start growing plants and we focused on a lot of natives and that was sort of the start. And that led to me getting more involved again with the native plant conference in Millersville um, because I knew it would be a great marketing outlet for our plants. And then things just progressed from there. And I eventually um, down the road ran the conference. So it's amazing what can happen if you're at the right place at the right time. Definitely. And you also have uh, offered a service called Harvey's Gardens where you source native plants. Yeah. And that was the name of our nursery. So as the nursery evolved and we had a family and various things happened, we stopped growing so many of our plants, but there was still a need And so I started sourcing plants for homeowners. Um, This was a common practice that you'd have plant brokers on the wholesale end for companies. But, you know, homeowners couldn't find the natives at their local garden center or they couldn't 
connect with the right landscaper who could find the plants they wanted. So I was able and fortunate enough with my connections, I could take a homeowner's plant list and I could find everything they wanted within two or three week period. They could come to my place, pick it all up, one stop, be done and take it home and plant it. So it eliminates, you know, the need for the client then to run all over the place to a dozen different nurseries um, just to find those plants they wanted. That sounds like a wonderful service. And then now we're up to date today where you're at Cavano's Perennials and describe what you're doing there. Well, I am the marketing director at Cavano's. So I'm involved with almost every aspect other than direct growing there. Um, We've been launching a couple new programs. One of them being that's going to hit in 2021 is called our pollination program, which I'm personally really excited about. It's a targeted um, grouping of plants that are beneficial to pollen specific bees, um, beneficial to a lot of the um, butterflies and moths that need a specific host plant. So we're really targeting a sort of an unusual niche. And while most people hear pollinator, they think general pollinators, we're providing those plants that really target those specialist pollinators out there so that we can get more of them into the market, get more people seeing these plants, growing these plants and enjoying them. Hmm. And I imagine that the labeling and the education uh, on those plants is going to be a big part of it. It is. And that's one thing that's a little bit unusual with what we're doing normally as a wholesale grower, which is what we are we would cater, you know, market this to our customers, which are the landscape contractors, the garden centers, the public gardens, but we're actually taking a little bit different spin and we're trying to provide that end user information. So we're providing, um, you know, videos on how to do things from planting to maintaining to whatever needs done, um, that are linked to QR codes on some of the tagging. We're providing, you know, a website that people can go back and find reliable information about these plants, find other sources, interesting facts that they might not see directly in the garden center with normal signage. But we really want to have this landing place for the end user. And we're hoping that that'll be a good sales tool then for our garden centers and even the landscape contractors to use as well. And for those listeners not familiar with Cavanaugh Perennials, they are um, located in Kingsville, Maryland. And as you said, they're a wholesale grower uh, and specializing in, per the name, perennials, (laughs) (laughs) native plants, ferns, grasses, vines, and ground covers. But this spring, uh, you jumped into edible plants. We did. Um, And we had been toying with edibles for the past several years before I became involved with the company. But when the pandemic hit, there were a couple of factors. One is we were deemed essential as a nursery. We're agriculture. So we felt if we're essential, we have to prove that we're essential and we have to really offer an essential service. So we not only grew a bunch of edibles and got them out to the public, we also opened up and did retail curbside pickup which is something wholesalers don't always do, but so many garden centers were closed and people were home and they wanted to plant. So we offered that service and that's what started our main website database so that we could have plants for sale if people couldn't get out to their local garden center or their garden centers didn't have the material they wanted at the time they needed it. So it was kind of a double um, intention. We, you know, we got, Uh, retail going, not that that by any means is our main business. We are still a wholesale nursery, but it's really nice to be able to offer that service at a time when people are looking for it and, you know, floundering almost on where to get plants and what to do. And everybody's new to this this year. It's, it's really interesting and inspiring. Hmm. So it's great that you got a lot of beginning gardeners to, to grow their first edibles, Um, Can you describe some of the selection that you offered? This year was a lot of trial and error. Um, We're trying to offer stuff that most growers aren't. Like, there's no way we're going to compete with the big veggie growers like Bonnie Plants. We're not in that market. 
but we have a lot of Baker Creek varieties. Um, we had some varieties um, from Renee's, you know, all the big name seed growers. And we are fortunate because of our scale with this, we can buy smaller packets and grow smaller lots. We don't have to buy these big, huge um, quantities of seeds, which allowed us to specialize a little bit. And going into 2021, we're going to expand our variety list exponentially from what we did this year. But that same mission continues. We might not have a lot of like the burpee hybrid type plants, but we're going to have a lot of heirlooms, a lot of tried and true, some unusual. And we're even doing some specific like mini programs. We're going to have like an Italian series an Asian series of vegetables. We're going to get into some like teas and tincture lines, maybe some dye plants and different things that people can, you know, capture and buy a, a group of plants that they might have find a different use for. That sounds really interesting, especially that um, you'll be starting the seeds and have started plants for people for things that you know, many growers find difficult. Right. Um, so that will give them a little head start. Uh, I mean, a lot of these crops for them. Yeah. And so that brings us kind of full circle to the end ish of the growing season, <laughs> har harvest time now. And um, many of us are finding an explosion of cucumbers and <laughs> tomatoes, and I'm I'm getting a lot of okra yeah. <laughs> at this point, <laughs> and more than so I can much keep okra. up with. Which I love okra, so that's not a complaint. But it's <laughs> it's it's a matter of getting out to the garden every day to pick it before yeah. it gets too big and crazy. Right. Um, so when you're inundated with this many at once you, there's kind of um the fight or flight tendency with gardeners i see a lot of that in my community garden where people just abandon their plots at this point yeah they're just overwhelmed and then other people are just fighting it literally just <laughs> picking everything they can and ripping out the zucchini vines and throwing mm -hmm. them into the compost pile um but obviously this is the point to capture the season height and the season taste um so that in february you're like oh, i wish i had frozen those okra i wish i'd had you know that fresh tomato taste right now you're yearning for it in the winter time so oh definitely mm -hmm. yeah and there's so many ways to do it and i guess over the years i've been canning and preserving since oh for at least 20 years and i you know growing up on a produce farm we did it growing up so Back then it was all, we froze everything. So I've been doing this forever. I found a lot of tricks and ways to make things easier, which is always good. And, um, you know, it doesn't have to be as intimidating as some people think, you know, you read the ball book on canning and, you know, it kind of gets scary and overwhelming that if you don't follow these steps, you know, you're going to fail. But when you break it down, it's really not that hard. So we can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, and, and easier and less expensive yeah. methods are always great and to get people started in there. And yeah, I do know what you mean by some of those those canning primers and those books. Yeah. They have such scary warnings that right. not just that you're going to lose, you know, what you grew, but that you're going to kill somebody. Exactly. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, uh, that is so rare. I know. Um, and you really have to almost like purposely make a mistake in right. that area and most of it is very obvious so yeah, yeah. we should talk about eliminating some of that fear and you know trepidation right because they do have to be up front and we'll be up front too yes. that you have to be careful um and obviously you don't want to make anybody sick right. but um I would say it's the same odds as buying you know lettuce from the grocery store and, oh exactly yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's very comparable to that. Um, and it was funny when I told some of my coworkers I was doing this, the first comment I got was, oh my goodness, I've never canned. Someone told me we might get botulism. So how do you prevent that? And I said, lots of lemon juice, buy stock in lemon juice. <laughs> so that's probably one of my big tips is, you know, lemon juice and vinegar are your friends with canning. Mm -hmm. so, so the key there is some acid yes. so yeah it, it's I would think the trickiest thing and I've never attempted to can it myself would be something with a low acid like apple butter um, yeah. and I leave that to the professionals right right 
So probably, I guess we should start at the beginning. Maybe mm-hmm. let's start with freezing because that's something it takes very little input as far as materials and supplies you need to buy. And it's probably one of the safer preserving methods as well. Mm-hmm. So freezing, everybody's got a freezer. How big of one, you know, that's up to you. I know freezers were hot this year. Like pe- stores can't keep them in stock because everybody's home. But having a secondary freezer from your fridge, if you have a vegetable garden, is going to be really critical because that's going to allow you when you get that stuff and you have to pick it that day, but you just don't have much time to really do anything with it, you can throw it in the freezer and deal with it later. That's my favorite thing to do. So when all these tomatoes hit, and I was, I go a little overboard. I had 35 tomatoes in the ground this year. And um, thinking early on, oh, they're so slow. I'm never going to get anything out of it. Well, then I started picking cart fools. Like I have a cart that's three by four in size, and it would be solidly covered. And what do I do with all these things? Well, the easiest for me, because I knew I didn't have the time to can at that moment, I would wash everything and core it and throw it in a Ziploc bag and put it in the freezer. And then I could deal with it later. And that's a relatively quick process. Um, And with freezing tomatoes, you're going to always cook them in some state later. So they're going to tend to break down when they thaw out. That's desirable, actually. Um, So that you can... You don't even have to can them later on. You could just pull those frozen tomatoes out in the middle of the winter and cook them down and make a really great soup or a sauce or whatever you're going to do with them. Um, So that's probably the simplest way to freeze. Um, And there's several things you can do that with. Peppers can be done that way. You can just, again, Mm -hmm. clean them. I chop them up, throw them in a Ziploc bag. Now they're all ready to be, you know, throw into cooking. I just grab a handful when I need them. Onions, if you're overwhelmed with onions, or if the grocery store would happen to have a big sale on onions and you want to stock up, the same thing. Just clean them and chop them up, throw them in a Ziploc bag, and in the freezer they go. Um, Now, you can't do that with every food. And there are some vegetables like your green beans, your corn, broccoli, um, cauliflower, kale even, that you need to actually pre-cook a bit before you freeze. And that's called blanching. And I grew up using, uh, what is it? The Better Homes and Gardens, the red and white plaid cookbook. Mm -hmm. I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with that. That's what my mom always had. But they have a good section in there and tells you how long you need to blanch based on what vegetable you're using. And that's my go-to guide. So I'll look through that, and if I happen to have green beans right now or whatever I'm growing, I'll find green beans. It tells me how long I have to cook them, and then it tells you right away to put them in a cold ice bath, and that'll stop the cooking process. And once they're totally cool, you throw them in a Ziploc bag or a freezer box and put them in the freezer, and they're good to go, and you're done. So it's not a super time-consuming process other than cleaning your vegetables. That's what can take the time. So if it's beans, you've got to snap them and break the ends. If it's broccoli, you've got to cut it into bite-sized pieces. Corn, you know, you cut it off the cob, that kind of thing. But um, freezing is really one of the quickest methods. It's one of the safest because unless you lose power, your food's going to be there. It's it's not going to thaw out. Um, Now, if you do lose power and things thaw, that's when you want to get rid of that frozen material, because if it thaws and refreezes, that's when you can start to have issues with the integrity. Yeah. And that was the one drawback I would say for freezing is the, I would say, I think it was like 12 years ago, we had Hurricane Irene. Right. And I was um, harboring my parents' freezer <laughs> and mine, because um, I knock on wood, did not lose power for that one. Right. And several neighbors and stuff. But again, at the same time, we were trying to eat as much as possible mm-hmm. from that as well. So yeah. just the second your power goes out, start the timer. And, you know, 12 hours is fine. Right. But three to five days, not good. Yeah. <laughs> so, either that or make yeah. sure you plug your freezer into your generator if you happen mm-hmm. to have one, because the generator should be. A normal size one should be able to run a freezer and a refrigerator, mm-hmm. um, especially in the summer. 
and you should be okay and it'll hopefully get you by a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned one of my favorite things to freeze, which is green peppers. And I love mm-hmm. to um, chop them up into dice sized pieces and then throw them, like you said, into a Ziploc mm-hmm. and then making pizzas over the wintertime, just grab oh, right. a handful and throw those on. Yep. And that's the best. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, super even, easy. Mm-hmm. Super easy and good. And um, another thing to freeze that a lot of people don't think about are their berries. So your yes. blueberry, your strawberries, um, you could either do it already macerated like in sugar mm-hmm. and put them into like I use like margarine tubs yep. and then put those inside another layer, like another Ziploc or something else mm-hmm. or just the straight berries to make smoothies or, you know, cobblers later on. Right. Right. Yeah. And with the berries, um, there's a couple ways to approach that. I know my parents will always freeze them on a cookie sheet so that they're not sticking together once they're frozen. And they then will pull them out and put them on their cereal for breakfast or use them as like the whole fruit, basically. But I'm I'm a lazy gardener, number one. I'm also a lazy freezer, so I don't take that extra step. I usually just wash those kind of things, throw them in a box and I don't always use my berries to eat them as the whole fruit, but I'll throw them into muffins or baked goods or that kind of thing. And then it doesn't matter so much if they stick together during the freezing process. So there's, you know, there's harder ways to do it, more labor intensive, and there's quicker ways. But depending on how you're going to use the end product, you can make that decision on how you're going to tackle the project. Mm-hmm. And you so. could always do a hybrid of, you know, I do quart size containers mm-hmm. of um, service berries when I'm picking them in June, because mm-hmm. I know that exact quantity is exactly what I need to make one cobbler. Right. So right. That's already pre-measured for me. I, I could just grab it from the freezer yeah. and pull it out. And then you could always do a cookie sheet or two and have those a separate nice for throwing on top. Right. And making some nice decoration. Um, That's right. That that would be kind of your uh, save for good. Right. Right. Exactly. (laughs) One for show and then the ones for cooking. That's right. And when you do them on the cookie sheet, then too, just to make sure it's clear, once they're frozen, then you can take them and put them in a a box Mm -hmm. or a Ziploc bag and they just won't stick. It's not that you're keeping on them on a cookie sheet forever because Mm -hmm. then you risk freezer burn and some other they'll get funky and just yes. not as yeah. desirable. You're but just that, freezing them yeah, in perfect shape. Yeah, as good exactly. As but mm-hmm. that's a great point about measuring it into quart containers because I do that with peaches and pears and even apples um, because then I'll pull them out and they're the right size for a pie. So all you have to do is thaw it out. They're already cleaned, ready to go. Um, you don't even have to do like your filling mix ahead of time. You can just take that frozen fruit, let it sit on your counter a little bit, thaw out, and then throw your stuff in and make a pie so it's a time saver on that end too yeah a little bit of prep in advance even when you're super busy now helps helps a lot right and I was going to ask you about labeling so once things go in the freezer for me Mm-hmm. I find it's kind of this black hole <laughs> <laughs> that you forget about. So right. I have a, a big Sharpie and freezer labels that I try to write really big what it is and the date on there. Yes. Uh, but I do know other people keep kind of like a chart or an inventory on their door of the freezer. So like maybe on a whiteboard of what's right. going in and what's going out. Do you do that, Wendy? I don't. I've tried and I'm really not good with that much organization. (laughs) So my method is that I keep um, masking tape and that's what my family's always used forever to label their boxes is we'll put a piece of masking tape on the lid and then write on it with a Sharpie. Um, I know my grandmother used to use more of like an oil-based pencil that they would then wash off of the lids later, but I still have some remnants because I have some of her old freezer boxes with her handwriting and those oil-based pencils on them. But um, for general use, so you're not constantly you know, crossing out a name, I, we always put masking tape or some other type of freezer safe label on there. And that's how we do it. And again, marking the date on there is crucial because while freezing, some things you can get, I've stretched it to two years past frozen i usually don't like to keep my frozen veggies or fruits past a year from when they were done so yeah that's a good point because foods do break down um they start to the texture is really 
in, uh, and we've all experienced ice cream freezer burn. Right. Um, and that crystallization in there. Yeah. And the same will happen to your fruits and veggies and your meats for that matter. But, mm-hmm. um, so. and hopefully by mid February, March, that's when you're starting to clean out for the, for the new coming season and make room as well. Yeah. Or if you're like me, I was doing it last week because I know fall veggies are coming. And <laughs> I had to make some room. So. And you're but, like, now's the time for last year's peaches. That's yeah. right. That's right. And anything that was too bad went on the compost pile. So that's yeah. all right, too. But yes. And I was going to ask you for um, the how-to of how you made these pawpaw pops, I'm going to oh. call them. So um, a year or so ago, we had a garden communicators event um, mm-hmm. for garden writers and speakers and professionals in the garden communications field. And Wendy came to the lunchtime break that we had and we had a box lunch and she provided an extra dessert item because it was a hot day, even though it was, you know, early fall. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was frozen pawpaw pops. Yeah. And for those of you that aren't familiar with pawpaws, they're only starting to ripen right now um, Mm -hmm. in mid-September. And that's, you only have a window of like three to four weeks when you can find them. And for the pawpaw pops, it's nice because they do hold a little bit longer. And pawpaws are a very delicate fruit. So they damp, they bruise quickly. They just don't have a long shelf life. But all I did for those on Amazon, you can get these long, skinny Ziploc bags that are like the perfect shape of a freeze pop for kids. Um, And I puree pawpaw and I think it's pear juice and some water just to help because pawpaws are really thick texture. And I just throw that in the blender, you pour them in the bags and freeze them. And they're delightful. And if you want to take it to another level, you throw a little bit of rum in there, which makes an adult pawpaw pop. And it's super yummy. But um, yeah, sorry, I didn't bring those to the meeting. But (laughs) That would have been a a very long afternoon nap. Yeah, we had several we had several more gardens to tour after that that's right yes that's right and we had uh michael judd on um a couple episodes ago talking all about pawpaw growing um so for listeners who haven't heard that episode yet do go back and check that one out but we didn't talk so much about pawpaw preserving so that's a great um tip are these pawpaw pops which yeah are so refreshing on a hot day. Yeah, and I can get you the exact recipe if you want to post it on your site, Kathy, so that mm-hmm. if anybody else wants to try them. Um, the one comment I will say about pawpaws, there's varying schools of thought on how they hold up in cooking and everything. And and I have found when you bake them, it tends to break them down and you're either okay pawpaws itself are a textural thing that you either love them or hate them but i'm personally not a huge fan of freezing them long term and then using them in cooking i just i think it it gets a little off taste and that kind of thing for me but another great way to use them this time of year is to make ice cream with them and there again you just puree the pawpaw and i have a little kitchenaid ice cream maker in my kitchen that i use and i just take a vanilla ice cream recipe and add the pawpaw and that works really well. But again, I just don't keep anything with pawpaw for a long period of time, like a month or two max on any of that. Hmm. Yeah. Great advice because yeah, with pawpaws, it is all about that texture. Yeah, it is. The tropical taste, you know, is what first hits your taste buds and then it's, you know, it's already so custard like Mm -hmm. it lends itself so well to these frozen concoctions as as a great addition. So, um, moving on from freezing, do you want to talk about drying and dehydrating next? Sure. Um, so I have my, this food dehydrator. It's, I think it's ancient. It's one of those Ronco food dehydrators from the TV commercials way back in probably the nineties, but it still works. I know there's newer ones out there, but I figure why ups, you know, buy something new when this one still works. And I do a lot of things on it. I'll do tomatoes that I just, again, if I'm inundated with tomatoes, I slice them up, put them on the dehydrator for a day. And then I have all but sun-dried tomatoes to use in my cooking later on. Um, We do that with apple slices as well and make dried apples. We've done dried peaches, dried pears. Um, 
you can do things like fruit leather. That's almost like a fruit roll up you would buy in the store. Um, but now that my daughter's older, we don't do much of that anymore. Um, because she's not into them as much. But with even with the dehydrated um, fruits and vegetables, if you're not going to use them within a month, maybe, I still throw those in the freezer once they've been dehydrated. I just feel long-term, in case you didn't get all the moisture out of it, which that moisture sitting there could have the potential to mold and mildew, um, we still throw them in the freezer. And then my husband will pull out dried apples through the year and take them in his lunch and you know, they'll just unfreeze and be back to normal. And the nice thing with that is they don't really change the texture when you freeze a dried product like that. So if, if you don't have a way to really pull out all the air when you're um, packing those dried products and shrink, I guess, or use some mm -hmm. of those food saver bags, maybe might work. But I like to err on the side of safety. And after I put all that effort into it, the last thing I want is for them to get moldy and you're never going to get all the moisture out. So that's my recommendation then is to take that dried product and freeze it till you're ready to use it. Hmm. So. That's great advice. Cause I did my first batch in a used dehydrator that was mm -hmm. gifted to me this summer yep. of um, drying some little yellow uh, cherry tomatoes uh -huh. and I had looked up what to add to them and they had said garlic uh, mm -hmm. powder so I just sprinkled garlic powder what do you do you put anything on top of your tomatoes when you dry them I don't I usually just dry everything um, and let it go because then I'll add flavoring and seasoning later but mm -hmm. you can that's a great idea actually because that would help absorb it into the um, the fruit before it's totally dehydrated Mm -hmm. And these were so sweet that I thought they needed a, a yeah. little something to them. Yeah. And then I just gathered them up and put them in a large mason jar in the mm -hmm. fridge. But I think um, you're right that I might go to the next step and freeze what I can't use in, say, the next month or so. Yeah. And with the dried stuff, when you freeze it, that I can get longer than a year out of if I don't mm -hmm. go through it all. Because it doesn't have the high moisture content, so it doesn't tend to get icy like some of your other vegetables might. Um, mm -hmm. And I've had dried tomatoes last a long time. And then they're super easy to reconstitute. We'll throw them in soups or whatever. Um, heck, you could even go back and make tomato soup out of them and totally reconstitute them with a little bit of sauce or something. But um, really easy to use and handy for whatever you're doing in the winter. Mm -hmm. And for drying if you don't have a dehydrator you could use of course your oven on a low setting right um, but it would right. take it does take several hours I found I had to do the tomatoes in two night batches yeah um, yeah because they, they're so full of moisture content even though I picked you know the the tomatoes that had the thickest skins mm -hmm. and, and the most um, least amount of um, seed material in them Right. Yeah. For drying in the oven, generally I like to do herbs and things using that method because it doesn't take as long, but you're right. When you have high water content items, it's going to take much longer. And if you can afford to tie up your oven for that purpose for that long, just keep in mind, it could be 12, 18 hours sometimes um, that you're running your dehydrator, whatever method you're using. So if you can afford to have your oven tied up, that's fine. But usually, maybe not this year, but other years, it's fairly easy to find used um, dehydrators out there on like Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist or whatever, because people try them and they think, oh, I don't use them enough. So I would say invest in one if you think you might be interested in it. It's, it's worth it to have. I'm not a big one on having tons of appliances all over mm -hmm. the place, but I think a dehydrator is worth the investment. And it's something that you could share amongst a group of friends. Oh, so sure. You could do, you know, a batch or two one week and then somebody else has a batch or two. Right. Um, yeah. And I call my little unit R2D2 because <laughs> <laughs> it is, it does take up a bit of room. Yeah. So yeah. Um, you will need a little bit of storage in the, uh, for that um, right. versus other appliances. Um, for dehydrating herbs, um, you could always, of course, just hang them straight the old fashioned right. method. Yep. Right. That's an easy way too. But the one thing I love mine for is hot peppers. 
Um, I'll put hot peppers in there and let them dehydrate. And it's just is so easy. And I don't have to, once they're dehydrated, they don't tend to give you that burn if you aren't wearing gloves as easily. And then again, I'll just throw those dehydrated peppers in the freezer. And I've been using my peppers from last year in all my tomato products that I'm canning this year. So it's kind of nice to have them all ready. It's one less thing to cut up this time of year, which is nice. Hmm, that's really good. So. And um, what herbs do you recommend for drying versus um, maybe um, using other methods for preserving them? Because so, some of the woody herbs I would think would be a lot easier, like the Mediterranean herbs, such mm-hmm. as oregano and thyme um, and rosemary versus like the more herbaceous herbs like basil and parsley yeah the herbaceous ones definitely you could almost just hang them upside down and do them i know growing up with parsley my mom would always cut it and freeze it and she'd put it in a little pint-sized freezer box and then when she needed it for cooking she'd grab that box and take a little paring knife and just scrape off as much as she needed and that was a nice way to really kept that bright green color Um, again, it was super easy because you don't have all those extra steps. So that's a neat way to preserve your parsley. Basil doesn't do that so well. Um, with basil, the other way I like to preserve basil is make it right into a pesto and then I can freeze that pesto. And it's, I like to put it in ice cube trays and then you can just pop out a cube or you can put all your cubes in a Ziploc bag and just grab a cube when you need it and it's ready to go. Um, The one thing I do with pesto is I will put a layer of olive oil over the top because then that helps keep the basil from browning quite so much. Mm -hmm. But but I don't use, that's really the only way I preserve my basil. I don't usually dry my own um, because I'm, you know, I'm limited on my space in my house. And so I don't have places to just hang bunches all over the place to dry (laughs) them out. So yeah, I almost consider it almost decorations at this point. Yeah, all, exactly. all the things I'm hanging mostly for preserving the seeds more right. than the the flavor itself. But right. basil tends to fade really quickly, so I think making it directly into a pesto right away is the best way of capturing that flavor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and when you mentioned um, ice cube trays, I had to laugh a little because um, some of the buy nothing and free cycle groups I'm on, um, that is a proverbial. Um, item that everybody asks for is <laughs> old ice cube <laughs> trays because now with people with uh, ice makers in their fridge they don't come with ice cube trays right. anymore so if you have uh, old ice cube trays they are a wanted item <laughs> <laughs> just to let you know oh, people are imagine. using them for these single um, freezing uh, portions and other various projects and crafts so yeah I'm almost thinking that there's got to be some manufacturers out of there that have to bring these old fashioned ice cube trays back too. Well, they are. I've noticed that because our um, ice maker, we stopped using it a year or so ago. And I'll admit, even before COVID, it, it was hard to find them. But now I am seeing them more on the market. So you are able to buy ice cube trays a little more easily. So. Which is great. And speaking of um, COVID caused shortages, <laughs> canning supplies yes. are another thing that I'm just hearing. Um, I've heard some crazy prices for lids yeah. um, because you can have the jars, you can have the ring, right? Um, but it's but the, the sealing lid. lid. Yeah. yeah. You have to have a fresh seal on it. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about canning okay. and maybe starting with pickling or something easy. Yeah. And yes, canning supplies are the new toilet paper. So don't expect to go out after this talk and find everything you need at the grocery store. It's not there. So I'll be straightforward with you. Um, Every place I go, I check. And if you can find a case of jars, that's like gold right now. So Um, but yeah, pickling is probably one of the easiest ones. And with all of, there's a couple sort of schools of canning to make it safe. The one is um, a low pH canning, and that would be your pickling or your tomatoes. And you need something to acidify it. And that's what helps preserve your vegetable. So with pickling, um, I would, for the beginner, I would get some of the mixes out there. Like Mrs. Wages makes a couple different flavored mix for pickles. Um, 
And they're just going to be a lot quicker turnaround for you than some of the old recipes that like my grandmother used. I know she would sit things in crocks for weeks and weeks and you'd get this mold layer and it was disgusting. And But it turned out a great product. But most people there, again, don't have the space or the patience to go through that whole process. Um, but some of these mixes allow you to do a real quick pickle that you know, you might have to soak them in the brine that you make overnight or a day or so, but then you can put them right in jars. So it's a quicker turnaround. Um, one thing, I have a recipe that my family's used that's just a dill pickle brine. And it's nice because you don't have to do a big batch. So I can make the brine, which is basically vinegar, salt, and water ahead of time and put it in the fridge and just heat it up as my pickles come in. And then I can a jar at a time or however many jars I get. So rather than waiting till you get, you know, half a bushel of cucumbers to do this big batch, you can do these smaller batches. Um, but with pickling and with anything, you know, even though you have the vinegar in there, you still need to water bath them afterwards. So you'll go through the steps of, you know, soaking your cucumbers in the brine and putting them in the jars and your your brine will need to be hot. Your jar lids will have to be hot. You know, all the canning books will go through all those steps. And then depending on the size jar you're using, you'll also heat them in a hot water bath from anywhere 10 to 15 minutes up to 25 minutes, depending on the size of your jar. Um, and I have to recommend one of my favorite book references. Um, I mean, there's the ball book of canning, but I really like um, Daniel Gasteiger's book, Yes, You Can. And I think it's preserve and mm -hmm. eat it too, or something is the yep. rest of the name. Yep. It's out of print, but you can buy used copies and it is so worth it because he will go through step by step, like any possible food item. And he'll tell you the pros and cons of canning versus freezing and how he does things. And he also gets into timing and safety, which is really important, but it mm -hmm. comes across not quite as scary as some of the other canning books, I think. Yeah. And Daniel, I miss him so much. He, yeah. he, recently passed away of cancer and he's he was a garden writer friend of both of ours yeah. and based in Pennsylvania and he did give several local talks on canning and he was a, a great resource um so I will put that link up um, yeah. on the blog post with this episode okay cool but yeah with with pickling not only can you do um you know cucumbers you can do things like pickled zucchini you can do pickled peppers um I've seen some people do pickled asparagus or green beans. Um, so depending on how creative you want to get, there's lots of ways, lots of different vegetables you can do. Um, and, and that's probably the simplest. But then we go on to tomatoes or anything um, tomato-based. And that could be your sauces, your salsa, um, whole tomatoes you might can or things like that. And when you do whole tomatoes, it, it's a time-consuming process because not only do you have to go through all the canning and heating, but you have to skin the tomatoes. So in order to do that first, you have to put them in a scalding hot water bath so that the skins come off easily. Um, and it, it can just take a lot of time. So I've evolved as a canner into doing one type of thing. And I make what I call my tomato base. And that's basically a thinned down sauce because... This time of year, I don't have time to sit and wait for sauce to cook down. Um, the last thing I want to do is watch a boiling pot for two days. But um, I'll throw everything in a pot, all my cut up tomatoes, and then I'll add things like carrots and peppers and onions, celery, that kind of thing for flavoring and cook it down until it's all soft. And then I throw it in my Vitamix and I don't de-seed now that I have a Vitamix, I don't skin them or anything because the Vitamix pulverizes everything. And the nice thing with that, it makes, it's basically a thicker juice. So it's more like a thick V8 kind of mixture. Um, but then I'll heat that back up and add additional spices or hot peppers or whatever flavoring I want and then can that. And I've found that's really handy because if I want to turn it into a tomato soup in the winter, I've got the basics of it ready to go. It just needs to thicken up a little bit. I've used it in things like stuffed peppers to mix with the hamburger and that kind of thing. Um, it makes a great Bloody Mary, you know, in the middle of winter when you need that fresh taste. And there's, I found lots of uses for that base product, basically. 
Um, so as far as simplifying, that's that's sort of my go-to right now. I I tried thinking, oh, let's do some salsa this year. And my mind is so focused on just cooking this down and making that tomato base that my salsa just turned into like this brown mush and everything cooked <laughs> too far. And I'm like, oh, just stick with what you're good at, Wendy. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. And I would say it has the added benefit of all that um, fiber and nutrients right. that are in the peels that you're taking off when you're exactly. doing the, the old fashioned sauce. So yeah. that's, that's a great addition there nutritionally. Yeah. And um, my lazy way that I was going to share is tomato jam. Oh. It's, and, and that includes everything as well. Yeah. <laughs> so that yep. skin, skin yeah. and all, you know, a little touch of hot pepper in mm-hmm. it just to give it a little bit of a kick. Um, but basically, basically it's a savory jam. Oh, it um, sounds good. And I use every tomato in it like mm-hmm. just whatever is left over right. at the end of the season throw it all together it doesn't have to be you know your beautiful um canning tomatoes right. or your san marzanos or anything just yeah. just totally mix it all on a, up in one big vat and yeah. quasin art and then just cook that down right yeah yeah and the one thing i've been doing too because all my tomatoes came in you know in august and i was busy with work and other projects I didn't have time. And and I will tell you the canning process from cooking the tomatoes down to blending them, heating them back up and actually going through the water bath and everything. That is an all day process. And you, I like to have a helper. Now I also do it in like this big, massive, like probably 18 quart pot or so. It's, it's big. And I do it on an outside propane burner because I have a flat, electric glass top stove. And with any of those things, when you have that much heat on one of those stove tops for that long of a time, you have the potential that you could crack that glass top. So I quickly moved to an outdoor um, propane burner, which not only is safer because I don't have to worry about it cracking, but it works a lot quicker, which is helpful. But where I was going with that, I, you know, I don't have these full days to can. So as my tomatoes were coming in there again, I would just wash them and core them and throw them in a Ziploc bag and put them in the freezer. And then as I build up enough so that I could fill my great big pot and just do one big batch all at once, then I pull those frozen tomatoes out and that's when I do my canning. So if, you know, most people don't have room like I do to put 30 tomato plants out. So if you only have one or two, but you think you might want to do some sauce or something and can it and see what happens, freeze your tomatoes till you build up enough inventory. And then it's super easy to pull them out. You know, they melt, you're cooking them down anyway. So they melt and thaw in the pot and then just go through your normal steps of making your sauce or whatever end product you're going for. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Like I have a, a bowl of tomatoes waiting on the counter and some mm-hmm. of them start to go bad before right. you have enough to make a batch of anything. Yeah. Um, and same thing, you know, that's the same principle as, you know, one or two bananas and, and every bunch mm-hmm. might not get eaten and start right. to get a little too black, throw those in the freezer to make banana bread later. Right. Then. Yeah. So, yeah. Now with your tomatoes, the one thing that, you know, tomatoes are acidic to a point, but, and we're talking about low acid canning as part of this preserving. But as some of these varieties have evolved, like yellow tomatoes don't have the acidity of a red tomato. One thing you always want to be careful is to make sure you're continuing that acidity so you don't risk the botulism or what have you. So one thing I do is I will add, I think it's two tablespoons of lemon juice for every quart jar or one tablespoon for every pint jar. Um, And I'll put that in the jar before I put my tomato sauce in there. Um, And that just helps make sure that your, your pH is low enough that you don't have issues down the road. Mm -hmm. And you can buy uh, also citric acid powder. Right. Um, So if you don't have fresh lemons or or lemon juice on hand, um, investing in a bag of citric acid uh, powder, which can be mixed up and used for cleaners and other things in the kitchen, um, that's a big help for canning. And I will say that I, I ordered some last winter 
just by chance for another recipe. And I'm glad I did because that's another <laughs> shortage item that I'm finding out. <laughs> Besides oh, the pectin yeah. and the lids and yep. citric acid. Um, yeah. As people are realizing now that they're going to need those for preserving. Right, right. So I guess the next step then after you do like a low pH canning would be to do a sugared product. And sugaring is another method it will give you your jams and jellies or possibly sauces that you might make. But basically by having a high sugar content that helps aid in that um, preservation process. Now with the jellies, I know there are recipes out there that um, don't involve, you know, the packaged pectins necessarily and they're okay, but I would recommend for any newbies buy a box of pectin, you know, it's pre-measured. It's really a no-brainer. Um, like Surgel is a good variety. There's some other ones out there that give you a little more customization. But I like the Surgels for new people to the to canning jams and jellies, just because it spells out exactly like it'll tell you what fruit you're using, how much fruit, how much sugar, and one box of pectin. And the pectin is what thickens it. Um, and it, it spells it out really simply how to how long to cook it and then how long to water bath it and all the steps you need. And I think until you're comfortable doing it, that's a simpler way. It's sort of not that it dumbs it down, but it it's very clear as far as your steps. And mm-hmm. then as you get to doing it, then you can start getting creative. And I've like combined two different fruits or things like that. And you learn how to adjust, you know, your measurements based on that. But initially... I, I really like, you know, some of those prepackaged um, options. Yeah, and that's a great point. And also that you need to check the expiration date. Yes. Um, yes. Um, I haven't come across any, say, in my local uh, hardware stores that's expired. But in my grocery store, I have. Oh, really? <laughs> that they ah. are selling either close or past the date because you think it's a shelf-stable product, yeah. but it's not. It's not. That's right. That's right. And then once you get, um, you know, a little more experienced, I know there's a great author up our way. She's written a book called Food in Jars, and she does a lot of small batch jams and jellies. She'll do like tomato jams and all this crazy fun stuff. And she doesn't use like the sure gel mixes, but she'll have other methods. So once you're a little more comfortable, then you can sort of get into the more creative um customizable recipes so yeah and I, I took her class it's marissa mcclellan yeah, right um food in jars um she's given a couple courses at the u.s botanic garden and she has a great canning 101 on her website mm-hmm. so it's foodinjars.com yeah um and she has a, a few pectin free i yes. guess methods um to experiment with but yeah i would consider that kind of a 2.0 level right once you've got the basics (laughs) down as you said um to experiment with but she has some great recipes so if you're you're looking for some interesting flavors she has a a wonderful pear jam yes that's so good she did that in the u.s botanic garden um class that i took and we got to take little jars home and i practically licked that clean (laughs) (laughs) i was like this is all oh i want more of this so that was so good um so any final um tips on canning uh wendy Yeah, I think the other thing, and I've gotten this question a lot, I've heard people say, well, I want, how did my grandmother can green beans or can squash or can some of these other things that you're not talking about? Well, anything that's not a low acid or a highly sugared product, you have to pressure can, meaning you can't use a water bath canner, which is the less expensive method. And you actually have to buy a pressure canner, which is a pressure cooker. Um, and I think that kind of fell out of fashion several years ago because like the old ones were known to have explode in the kitchen and people got scared by it. So that everybody sort of leaned more toward hot water bath canning, but now they've made some much safer pressure canners and that's really the only safe way. And like the extension services will tell you that too, that if you're doing green beans or squashes, or I don't know what else you might be canning but you can can other 
um, vegetables, but they have to be done using a different method. And now you're talking, you know, before the pandemic, some of those pressure cookers were two, three hundred dollars. So I can only imagine where they're at after, you know, during a pandemic and you probably can't even find them right now. Um, Mm -hmm. so just beware, you know, you really want to stick with the recipes and there's a reason why you don't see canning butternut squash on every shelf in the grocery store because you need special equipment. Mm -hmm. And there for farmers or small scale growers, there are facilities, um, that you could bring to can for you. Um, so to do that process, especially for the, the, the low acid ones, um, so I would recommend that if all of a sudden you had a ton of pumpkin, say, <laughs> wanted right. to can a bunch of pumpkin right. pie filling, that you bring it to one of those facilities. And your local extension agent I usually has a list of those um, right. resources for, and that's yeah. mostly for small scale um, farmers that yeah. just have like a kitchen garden that they would be doing it. Say for canning creamed corn, right. that might be one of those right. products. Um, yeah. I don't know how much you love cream corn, but that, <laughs> you better love it a lot to go to that yeah. extent. Yeah. yeah. So that's really where how I decide whether I can or freeze an item. Like I'll do a lot of pumpkin, like you said, for pumpkin pies. But because I don't do the pressure canning, that's automatically a frozen product for me. And I freeze it in the right size box so I can just thaw it out and make a pie. So, Okay. So I see a lot of people growing a lot of things, you know, just to experiment. And then they have all this excess that they want to do something with. But I would suggest if you if it's not something you really like when it's fresh, why put the effort into preserving it? Because Mm -hmm. I see it as more valuable at that point in the compost pile. Once you've learned you don't care for it, your family doesn't eat it, then why put the extra time into canning and everything, you know, only to say oh maybe we'll learn to like it well probably you won't <laughs> so. or everybody is getting um pickled asparagus for Christmas yeah this exactly year. <laughs> exactly well yeah. that was wonderful wendy so i think we'll be preserving a lot of flavors of the season um and a lot of fully stocked freezers i think this winter time yes. Yes. and hopefully people will try a little bit of canning out just to get themselves used to it and maybe um extend some of their skill set in that direction and it's always nice to to can with an experienced canner um so so an older relative or a friend who's done it you know that's what they do every year um that's always nice to have somebody as a backup as you said you you like to have a helper when you're canning in the kitchen it just helps have that second pair of hands as well it does and even if they're not experienced just to have a second person there because Mm -hmm. then you know, you're trying to decipher, well, what do they actually mean? I've never done this. So you have two minds working at it is sometimes helpful. Mm -hmm. Great point. So So when do you have a couple of events coming up that we want to talk about? And um, let's share that link for um, Cavanaugh's Perennials. Sure. Um, Cavanaugh's is Cavanaugh's.com, but we also, our retail site is Cavanaugh's.shop. And that's where you'll find our online catalog, as well as our Sunshine Avenue Farms collection, which are our edibles. Mm-hmm. And I, I was going to say Cavanos is spelled C-A-V-A-N-O. With an S on the end. Mm-hmm. Yep. C-A-V-A-N-O-S dot shop. And if you look up our edibles on there, we're still building it, but you'll start to see recipes showing under the individual items. You know, we're going to have tips on preserving down the road. We've partnered with Brie Arthur, who wrote The Foodscape Revolution, and she's going to help um, giving us some video content as well. So you'll start to see some of that information into 2021. And as far as upcoming events, um, last night, which was September 10th, I was part of a group that we started a series with Dr. Doug Tallamy. Um, and he, Doug spoke last night. We had 1,300 people registered for the event, which is cool. Wow. And, yeah. And I'll be speaking next Thursday. And the idea, um, the lecture series, now I can't think what it's called, um, <laughs> Nature's Best Hope off of Doug's, um, the name of his last book. But Doug talks a lot about how to increase biodiversity in your yard 
and about all the critters that you're going to bring. So my talk to follow that up next week is going to be on the how-tos and looking at different techniques that various people present and the pros and cons of those and just really how you can be successful and that you don't have to do it all at one time, which I think kind of overwhelms a lot of people. Um, so that will be on September 17th. And the last part of our series will follow up on September 24th, I believe. And Doug and will be back and I'll be there as well. And Doug's going to do a Q&A. So it's one of those, if you have questions you've been dying to ask Doug Tallamy, this is your chance and he's going to answer them. So we'll have a whole hour of Doug answering questions. So that should be fun. Um, I know originally for anybody who is interested, registration was supposed to be over on the 9th, but I do think they have a wait list. So it's worth going to the website, um, which you can find the link if you look for um, Community Conservation Committee on Facebook, you'll find the event link on there and registrations through Penn State. So that's probably the simplest way to get to it. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, it's great to hear there's a wait list and, and so much interest and demand for that content. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And it is a free event. So if, if you have any interest in the last sessions, you can try to get on the wait list and see if they'll let you in. I, I can't guarantee, but it's worth a mm-hmm. shot. Well, thank you so much, Wendy. Um, we are going to be eating so well this winter time. <laughs> <laughs> and um, probably after this cycle, learning what we want to grow for next spring that and summer that we'll actually want to be eating. So that's and, right great advice of obviously grow what you love, grow what you're going to consume and um, don't stress about what is on other people's lists or what other people are growing. Right. That's right. Well, thank you, Wendy. Thank you for having me. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Plant profile, great blue lobelia, lobelia syphilitica. Great blue lobelia is a good plant for attracting pollinators with its brilliant blue-violet flowers in mid to late summer, when many other things in the garden are starting to look tired. Blue lobelia is a native perennial plant to the eastern half of the United States. It is a woodland plant that prefers part sun and even moisture. Do not allow it to fully dry out or it starts to get a bit crispy around the edges. It grows to about one to three feet high. It tolerates most any soil type, heavy clay to sandy. To propagate it, divide clumps in the spring. It does also recede a bit, especially in a damp yard, but it is very easy to pull up where you don't want it. The white version is just as tough, though I have found it harder to propagate it. It has no pest problems, is deer resistant, and tolerates drought. The best part is, that it blooms for more than six weeks straight. Great blue lobelia, you can grow that. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter by going to anchor.fm backslash Kathy dash gents backslash support. For as little as 99 cents a month, you can become a listener supporter and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. Another way to support Garden DC is to go to WashingtonGardener.com and subscribe to Washington Gardener magazine. For this week's What's Blooming in the Garden, 
I wanted to share one of my all-time favorite flowers, toad lily, Tricertus. The common name sounds so ugly, but it's such a beautiful flower. It looks like tiny orchid sprays, and the samurai variety is blooming away right now in my garden, and I have about five other varieties that will be coming into bloom in the next few weeks. It's a early to mid-fall bloomer just when you need it and um, after planting they take virtually no care you can fertilize them but I just throw leaf mulch around their base a few times a year uh, if you want to divide and share them with other gardening friends or relocate them around your garden do so in the early spring to let them settle in before the autumn bloom cycle uh, the only other advice I can share is they can get a bit tall and lanky, um, which makes them easy to knock over. So keep them out of prevailing winds and plant them next to something they can lean on. Um, I have mine around the base of my gazebo and against an old bird bath um, where they're happy to keep company with Solomon seals and lungwort and other dry, moist, condition-loving plants. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.